Yeah, we're going to just do uh, a little section now on some of the questions that have come in. Uh, we're not brave enough to take questions on the day, or stupid enough. Um, so, uh, hopefully you will find these helpful. Thank you very much, Ruben. You can sit in the middle, you've been there all day, so you might as well stay there. Um, I think what, what I've found encouraging so far about some of the, question, some of the questions that have come in um, is that actually we're covering a lot of the questions in the series anyway. So uh, it kind of helps us that we've actually done a good job with the questions that we're putting in. I hope you found that really helpful. Didn't Ruben do a great job? Just unpacking that. I mean, too random, of course, a bit much, but it was, he did a very good job. Um, these guys, it's been a real blessing for me to serve alongside these guys in the Alpha team, uh, and they do such a good job that I now no longer need to be part of the Alpha team. Uh, whenever people come in, people will tell you who have come to Alpha that Gabriella and Ruben have just been amazing and really helped them, so uh, it's a privilege to have these guys alongside me to answer the questions. So, I'm going to stop going on, and we're going to answer, I don't know what first question is going to come, I know what four we're looking at today. Um, but I'm not sure which question is going to come up first. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so, how does geographical location affect religion? Is it an add-on to culture? And Gabriella is going to answer that one first. I can answer it easily. The answer is no. <laughs> well, there you go. Next one. <laughs> um, I, I guess that's not so helpful. Um, but it is actually encouraging because it's really good news, the fact that religion isn't a culture because that means that there is always room for the gospel um, and, and that's despite the prevailing culture, whether it's a Christian country or a non-Christian country, there is always room and space for the gospel. So um, to unpack the question a little bit more, um, do we have them up in the back? Okay. Is the actual full question coming up? Uh, that, that is it. Okay, so the, the full question that came through was how should we address how geographical location can affect religion. For example, the majority of India is Hindu, the majority of Cambodia are Buddhist, and the US are Christian. Is religion a culture? And so to unpack it to be a little bit more helpful than no, um, there's three things that we really need to consider around this question. Um, the first is a helpful basic understanding between the difference between religion and culture. I mean, they're both very complex um, things to define specifically, but on a very basic level, if you think of religion as the way that people relate to and are influenced by God, so it's almost like a vertical direction, and culture is more how people relate to and are influenced by one another, so it's a lateral um, uh, kind of direction, it's in the outworking of these that the two are linked, and very often they can be intimately linked, and it, it, it's completely logical, because if you think um, how you um, relate to and are influenced by God, um, if that has an influence on how you relate to people around you, which, by the way, every single religion does, you are going to have an out outflow of that, and so your relationship upwards is going to affect your lateral relationships. Um, uh, and so it has an effect on the culture that, that individuals will create around them. The stronger and the wider the influence of the upward direction, the influence and relationship of the beliefs, the stronger and wider effects it's going to have um, on the people around them. Um, uh, Christmas and Easter are, are helpful examples. If you think of them, they are by definition Christian holidays. I'm not sure I could find anything more Christian than the birth and resurrection of Jesus. 
Um, and yet they have become part of mainstream culture if we look around us today. And that's because at one point, um, majority of, of the West were Christians and so they became holidays in the Christian um, practice. Um, but now it's not hard to recognize that outside of the church, these are as widely practiced as inside of the church um, and are completely unrelated to Christianity anymore. Um, I mean, Easter eggs have got nothing to do with Easter anymore and there's hundreds of them sold. And so it's become a cultural thing in the West. And so you can see how these lines blur as they shape one another. Um, it's also really important to realize that this influence works the opposite way. Culture can influence religion. Um, it's a bit of a tired example, but if you think of Hitler's regime, the church became incredibly controlled. It was dictated by the state, and their culture was now having a massive influence on religion. Um, and so in that instance, either the church bowed to it, so religion bowed to culture, or it didn't, and that's where clashes and persecution would come in. That's the same today. So that's the one really important thing to understand the kind of basic difference between religion and culture. The other really important significant difference is that there is a big difference between saying you are a certain religion and actually practicing your faith. Um, we all sitting here today from anyone outside the church would be considered religious and yet many of us would probably shy away from that word because of the connotations of it. Um, because we all know people who say they're very religious and yet act out very little faith. Um, and so we need to understand that this applies across all faiths. Uh, you mean it's not just Christianity that may be called religious, um, but across all faiths. And so just because someone says they are a certain faith doesn't mean they're actually practicing that religion. This is also a really important point actually for how we live out our faith. Um, sharing as Christians that we don't just do what we do because of the, re the religious beliefs that we follow. It's not just practices we follow, but actually how we live and how we treat other people is as a, res is as a result of our relationship with Jesus. It's an outpouring of that. Um, sorry, I'm going on a bit. But finally, it's it's important to understand, yes, we recognize cultures on a geographical level. So we think of Japanese, uh, Indian, whatever. All different cultures, you recognize that. But culture on a geographical level is not where culture starts. Um, how often do we, we talk of, at a much lower level, for example, a group of friends. You say, oh, that group of friends is really not a good influence on that person. The reason they're not a good influence on them is because of the culture they've created in that friends group. It's an unhealthy culture. Um, and so the reality is anywhere where you get repetitive human interaction, you have a potential to create a culture there. You have a culture in your workplace, you have a culture in your family, you have a culture in your church, um, and that's dictated by the different people in that belief. When you then start getting lots of little groups of a culture, you I mean if you live your culture out or you create a cultural group, it starts influencing those around the culture. The stronger those beliefs again, the greater that influence ties in. And then if you start getting lots of little groups in the same area which have the same culture, automatically now that whole effect gets larger. And this is how culture develops. This is how the gospel spread in the first place. It kept changing the culture around them. It's how the, it's how the gospel still spreads today. Um, 
in the West, it's sometimes harder to see because um, Christianity is in, in decline. But if you look at the church in China, um, it's, the, it's growing exponentially. And so the reality is in 50 or 100 years, China, which is now definitely not Christian as a strong communist country, may be called a Christian country. Culture changes. I think a part of this question as well is going to be covered, isn't it, by uh, when you preach on what about other religions as well? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to add it in now. But, yeah, um, okay. No, that's pretty helpful. But I've got a little summary. Sorry. Go for it. So, it, effectively, addressing the specific question of how do we address geographical location and its effect on culture, we need to recognise that it exists. We need to recognize that culture is not simply created by ge geographical location and that culture does change. Um, it's always important to ask questions when we're talking to someone, whether they actually believe it or they're just kind of following the religion um, and, knowing whether, uh, and knowing your faith and being able to share why yours is a faith, not a religion. Um, remember, you have the ability to influence culture around you. It's actually what we're called to do. Um, it's what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray your kingdom come. That's influencing the culture around you. Um, equally, it's really important that we recognize the prevailing culture can influence us. And are we letting it and letting it affect our beliefs? Um, and finally, probably the most important is to never forget the gospel is good news. It is always good news. It is always the truth. It is always able to set people free. And very often, it's in fact because of the prevailing culture and the darkness that that creates that the light and the truth of the gospel and the light of Jesus' love is able to shine even brighter. Very good. Very good. Okay, the next question. Uh, what is the church's view on mental health? Uh, the kind of fuller question, we're just trying to abbreviate the questions a bit, uh, was... Um, what is the view on taking medication? Uh, people have felt judged in the past uh, by that, or Christians have felt judged by taking uh, medicine for mental health reasons. And uh, I would say I'd absolutely support people taking medication for mental health reasons. Sometimes there is a, a chemical imbalance that needs rectifying. Um, and actually God has given us, as I talked about in the first um, episode of Big Questions about how actually God has given us science. Uh, so actually, I think it is really healthy if people are really struggling that they go and see their GP and that actually we're not judged for that because God has given us that anyway in the first place. Uh, and if you've got any further questions on that, I'm happy to talk to you afterwards, or Ruben is. Um, <laughs> uh, hope that helps. Next question. How do we know Jesus is who he says he is. Well, Ruben, you basically just covered that, but how can you just help us one last time? Uh, yeah, I think really, like I, like I said, it comes down to the resurrection. I think that's the thing that proves who he says he is and vindicates all of his claims to be uh, the Son of God. And, and like I said, I don't think you can force, you can't force anyone to kind of believe that. Um, uh, it's kind of, only God can open people's hearts at the end of the day. And I think looking into that evidence for the resurrection um, is really powerful. Uh, a number of people who have set out to write books trying to disprove the resurrection and have ended up through their research um, becoming Christians. It, it's quite funny, really. Um, so there's people like Lee Strobel, who wrote Case for Christ, who uh, started it uh, wanting to prove his wife wrong um, and 
came out the other side, a Christian. So um, if you do look into the evidence, just be warned that you might become a Christian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself before we yeah, dive in? Well, thank you. I, I have loved uh, being at Hope, and I promised Ian I wouldn't use this as an opportunity to talk about the tidiness or otherwise of his office, so I went. <laughs> I have been privileged to be part of the Beauty from Ashes ministry for about 15 years and served there full time for the last 10. We are in a healing ministry. We, we really seek to bring the power of Jesus still to heal broken hearts and set captives free. I was widowed three and a bit years ago, which is one of my griefs. But you know, I have so been blessed by joining you guys. And you look great from this <laughs> <laughs> um, Many people already have been blessed by going to, uh, uh, be blessed by Carol's ministry. Um, so um, yeah, we're very blessed to have her with us. And she's gonna help us with our questions today. Um, um, she's gonna answer all the questions. Yep, everyone. Um, okay, why don't we get the first one up on screen. And it is, how do we best include God in our fast-paced life? And Carol is going to answer this one. Well, yeah, I, I was quite keen to answer this one. And I want to tell you about my watch. So I have this great watch, and it does tell me the time, but I don't use it for that. <laughs> so right now, it tells me that so far today, I've done 1,216 steps. It tells me that my heart is beating at 78 beats a minute. It tells me that my blood pressure is currently 100 over 72. That's quite good, isn't it? I always have low blood pressure. And it tells me that I'm 99%, no, 92% hydrated and I need to drink a glass of water. <laughs> but supposing there were another screen on our fit watches that told me how nourished my heart is, Supposing there were a screen that said, Carol, your heart is only 82% nourished. You've got to catch hold of God's heart. You've got to catch hold of the living water. And I think that behind this question of how we fit God into our fast-paced lives, actually there's a misconception about God. Because our heads understand his love and his unconditional acceptance, don't they? But if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, but if you're anything like me, somewhere there's a little picture of God with a clipboard, and he looks a bit like a cross between a bank manager and a headmaster. And he's like, oh yeah, today's quiet time. Bit short, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, pretty much, oh, lack of focus. Four out of ten for effort, could try harder. So when I turn up the next day, I'm already apologising for yesterday's time. Yeah? But actually, if we thought differently, that this is an opportunity that God has given us to nourish our hearts, just like my watch tells me I need to drink a glass of water, we need that connection in order to nourish our hearts and be healthy. And I think that part of this comes down to 
having that image of Jesus' Father that Jesus told us about. And who knows his father better than Jesus did? And you know, the guy that went off and spent all his money and he, he races home and he's, he's rehearsing his apology all the way home. Oh, I'm not worthy anymore. He never gets to deliver it because the father wants to get to the hugging and the kissing. The father runs to get to the hugging and the kissing. And if we could switch by grace our mental perception of God with the clipboard and the four out of ten for effort to the father that runs. Oh, I've been looking forward to meeting with you all day. Come on in, sit down. Tell me, how's it been going? What's life been like for you today? How was it? How did it feel? It's check-in time. You know, we text each other all the time, don't we? We are always giving and receiving texts. It didn't take seconds to have that check-in with the father's heart. Father, Father, just want to catch hold of you right now, Father. We've got to get rid of God with a clipboard. And we've got to recognize the Father that just wants to get to the hugging and the kissing. And who is longing. And I, I will stop, I promise. Um, but <laughs> if it's hard for you, I want to make a real practical suggestion. I use this in my own life, and I have taught it to so many people that come and see me and say, oh, I'm really struggling for connection with God. And no matter how busy your life is, you can fit this in. You take five minutes out of your day, at a time when you would be having a cup of tea or coffee anyway, okay? And you sit down with your cup of tea, it's Yorkshire tea for me, and I just see Jesus come and sit down opposite me. He drinks Earl Grey. I don't know. <laughs> and I just say to him, okay, Jesus, I'm going to take this five minutes to drink this cup of tea with you with intentionality, and I'm going to let you love me. You don't do anything, yeah? Your job is to pitch up and drink your tea or your coffee. I'm just going to sit here for five minutes and let you love me. That will nourish your heart. The more nourished our hearts are, the more we let go of God with the clipboard, and the more we see the Father that's longing to draw us in to that place of connection. Very good, Carol. Thank you. I think what's key in that is that actually Yorkshire tea is God's anointed tea, isn't it? It's, it's the choice I, of champions. I, really, I, 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 I feel there's a lot to that. <laughs> okay, next question. How can a God of wrath be a God of love? Ruben. Uh, yeah, I get the easy question. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's a really good question. It's a really common question that comes up in um, conversations with people, uh, particularly thinking about this Old Testament. Um, and my short answer to the question, which I will explain, is that um, because God is a God of love, uh, he must also be a God of wrath, a God of righteous anger against sin. The two things are not opposite, so you might think that they are. And I'll just explain that um, here with three kind of quick points. So first of all, the Bible holds together these two things that we often want to separate. Uh, if you read in Exodus chapter 34, where Moses uh, God is talking to Moses, and God is proclaiming his name uh, to 
to Moses, um, God includes lots of things that we think, oh, that's great, God is good and kind and gracious, but then God also talks about punishing sin, and um, we maybe get that uncomfortable at that point. Um, and so if we jump on to look at Romans chapter 11, uh, and there Paul tells the church to note then the kindness and severity of God. So in one second, Paul is telling us to think about uh, God being kind and gracious, but he's also telling us to think about uh, his severity and his justice. So if the Bible can hold those two things together, then we want to do that too. The second thing to say is that if there was no wrath or there was no justice, if there was no anger against sin, then God would not really be loving, actually. Um, and the Bible tells us that God is love. But what happens when love meets uh, evil and sin in the world? And I think you see a little bit of what happens then when uh, parents uh, maybe tell their children off because they love them, uh, or things happen to their children and they want justice, or where abuse has happened, or where crimes have been committed. And that gives us a little picture of Charles talking about the father heart of God, that um, God is our father, he loves people in the world. And so when there is sin, and when there is evil and injustice in the world, God's love reacts against that in anger. Um, and um, evil must be dealt with in some way. And so the opposite of love is not anger or wrath. The opposite of love is in, indifference, that God doesn't care. If God looks at all the evil and injustice in the world um, and he didn't care about that, would he still be good? Would he still be worth us worshipping? I don't think he would. Miroslav um, Volk was a, was a theologian. Uh, he lived through the war in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Uh, he used to think that God's wrath was not really worthy of him, it wasn't really uh, a thing uh, that God, God shouldn't be angry against sin. Uh, but Paul changed his mind and he said, um, uh, I, I came to think that I would have to rebel against God who wasn't wrathful at the side of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Um, and I think that's really helpful to remember. Also the Bible tells us that God's anger against sin, his wrath is not the same, actually, as his love. It says he is slow to anger um, and he is quick uh, to show love and mercy. That his wrath is only there because of sin. God is always loving. God is love. The Bible really clearly tells us that. Um, but we have to, to really know God properly, we have to consider both of those things uh, together. Um, and the third thing is that the kind of apparent tension between God's wrath and anger against sin and his love is resolved in Jesus at the cross uh, because there we see that sin is punished, God's uh, justice is served because Jesus takes the penalty that we deserve, uh, but also that because of God's love, he, uh, it is God himself taking that penalty uh, that we can have a relationship with him. Um, and the Old and the New Testament both talk about a day of judgment coming. Um, the question that God sent in made a reference to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, where the Amalekites are uh, wiped out by King Saul, and it's quite a, a hard passage to read. It's one probably one Christians will often uh, maybe bring up, but actually, uh, some of these passages are are not kind of bygone kind of things in the past. They actually uh, quite a sobering way. They point us on to a day of judgment that the Bible tells us will come on everyone actually because of sin. So it's not because in the Old Testament those people belonged to a particular people group. It's because they were sinners, and we're all um, sinners outside of Jesus. Uh, we all need to be rescued from God's judgment that's coming because of his love for the world. Um, 
and that then caused a lot of response. Uh, the New Testament, when you read it, uh, shows us Jesus both as being a saviour of the world, but also to tell us that Jesus will be the judge of the world, who will uh, judge the living and the dead. Um, and that caused a lot of response uh, from us uh, today, really. Um, and I mentioned at the end of my summer last week a section in Acts 17 where Paul uh, tells us uh, that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed, and that man is Jesus, um, and he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Um, so it's really helpful to remember Jesus is our saviour, but he is also appointed to judge the world. Um, yeah. Very good, very good. Thank you, Ruben. <laughs> Now let's move on to our next question. Why should we pray communally when we can pray privately? Well, um, I think it's really important that we should pray in community. Often prayer in the Old Testament and New Testament is in the context of community. As you'll see in the Lord's Prayer, it talks about our Father in heaven, uh, forgive us our sins, uh, our daily bread, lead us from temptation. Um, at the Pentecost, the believers were gathered together, uh, seeking God and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on a community together. Um, I think you'd also, if you look sort of through church history and the history of revivals, any revivals really throughout uh, history began with people gathering together to pray and seek God. Um, uh, about 90% of the teaching on prayer in the New Testament is in a corporate setting. And we're made to be in community, so corporate prayer will help you in your private prayer life. Um, if you pray alone and don't pray in community, don't come to prayer meetings, you are missing out. So I would heartily recommend uh, that you come to prayer meetings to, or even gather with a few other believers to pray on a regular basis, whether that's in a connect group or you could have a little prayer triplet. To pray together uh, is really powerful. It brings unity. In um, Acts 4, uh, when there was persecution breaking out against the early church, they gathered together, they called out, Sovereign Lord, and the room started to shake and it gave them boldness. Now, I'm not sure if I know of anywhere else in the New Testament where an individual was praying on their own and the room began to shake. So there's something powerful about gathering together as a community of believers to seek God. Come and the room might be shaken, who knows? Um, hopefully that's helpful. And the last question is, uh, if God has an exact plan for our lives, what is the point of praying and would it change anything? Well, guys, what do we think about this question? I think it's like a sat-nav. If I set my sat-nav to go from home to Seven Oaks, it takes me about 35 minutes. If the sat-nav says turn left and I turn right, and then I turn right, it'll say no, turn around. But if I keep ignoring the sat-nav, I can sort of travel from my home to Tombridge via Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah. What we want is to get to that place of the perfect plan as easily and as quickly flown with his heart as we can. Remember, it took Israel 40 years to get from Egypt to Canaan, yeah, because they weren't following, the, they, they, they messed up on the perfect plan. The destination is safe. 
It's what we sow into the journey that makes the difference. Very good. What do you reckon, Ruben? You know, I was going to, when I didn't mention this question, I was thinking of uh, where Jesus says that your father knows what you need before you ask him, um, but he still wants us to ask. Um, yeah. So, and similar to what Carl said, really, that um, God wants to know us personally, have a relationship with us, and that's why I think it's really important uh, to pray. Yeah, very good. And it's only by really seeking God in prayer that we tend to discover what his will is. You're right, he's calling us into relationship. So it does change things when we pray, actually. So I uh, would encourage you to do that. It changes yeah. us, doesn't it? Really, okay. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Um, most of all, it changes. Like when I pray, it changes my own heart, my own yeah. perspective on, on something. Yeah. Otherwise, you could be in danger of being sort of fatalistic, couldn't we? Of kind of, well, whatever will be, will be. God's got a plan. But actually, it's about pursuing Him and drawing into relationship with Him. Yeah, so I hope you have found these uh, questions and answers helpful. Uh, we're going to continue in our series next week. If your question hasn't been answered, it's probably because it's likely to be answered in the remainder of the series. Uh, we've had a few questions about hell, for example. Well, Adam is going to be talking uh, on hell in a couple of weeks' time, so hopefully that will help you. 